I want to meet the weirdo who's like, hmm, episode 57 of this podcast. I want to start here. <laughs> Welcome back to Check This Please, a podcast that has been going on for a year as of April 15th, 2021. Today we are going to be covering an episode called... Is this podcast mean? Which is a question about our podcast, spurred by some recent conversations we've had. And as we've been evaluating the comic, perhaps we ought also evaluate ourselves. I'm Secret, and I'll explain more why I felt this was a smart thing to do later. Who's on the call with me? Hi, as usual, I'm Tomato. Today I'm drinking water, no exciting news. But I do have some exciting news, which is that we have someone else on the podcast today as well. It's me, I think this is the time where I introduce myself. Hi, (laughs) Um, this is Queer of Cups and you probably don't know me, but if you do, you probably already know that I'm super down with being mean. (laughs) Well, that's awesome. That's why we uh, wanted you on this episode. for that and also because I guess we think you're pretty smart and you have good check please opinions. So that's exciting. If anybody doesn't know, Queer of Cups wrote a fanfic for the um, Heartbreak Fest in summer 2020 that uh, I am obsessed with. It is called Tell Everyone You Are a Good Wife. And um, I have probably spent more time talking to Tomato about that fanfic than like any other fanfic of the past year so this is just in another sense just shameless putting people we like on our podcast round two this fanfic was written for me in that fest and i have lost my mind about it routinely and i have made people who are not in fandom listen to me talk about it on multiple occasions so it's really really good and you should read it um, thank you. And also, honestly, the only reason I wrote it was because I like stumbled upon y'all and um, your criticism and found it super interesting and made me want to engage again with Check Please. So really, there's some sort of like, Ouroboros Inception thing happening here. <laughs> well, Hopefully, fingers crossed, and we'll see what happens. That'll make this a good conversation. And if not, maybe we can fix it in post. We do always try. You know, how successful we are is questionable, but I I think it'll be good. So we're like halfway through. We finished years one and two. We're at a good kind of place to pause and reflect a little bit, not just on the comic, which I think we'll have plenty of opportunity to do kind of in episodes, but also on the podcast and our feelings about Check Please fandom as well. Around the break between year two and year three is when I came into Check Please fandom. Starting here is sort of where I've developed like a consciousness of fandom. And immediately from the first time I peeked at Check Please fandom, what marked it for me was a huge amount of discourse, especially considering how much you ought to 
critique the comic and which aspects of the comic it was like okay or appropriate to like. And I think I would have left this mostly aside, except for a few weeks ago, I wrote a Rex list for just like a couple of specific people I'd been talking to in the early stages of getting into Check, Please fandom or reading the comic. And I got reblogged by somebody I'd never heard of who basically said, this wreck list is bad. And this is not what you should have wrecked to these people. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. And I started clicking around like that person's blog. And what I realized is that this podcast has a little tiny hatedom of people who think this podcast is mean and that it's overly critical and looking at check please in the wrong way. And now because I am the worst, I was just like, okay, well, let's talk about this. And um, I invited the person who seemed like the kind of most vocal critic to come on the podcast and talk about it. And that person said, no. So then we did the second most obvious thing, which is just go to somebody who we like, who we think probably mostly agrees with us, you know, step two. But that's how we've gotten here. And so uh, Queer of Cups, if you want to, I don't know, give a little spiel. How did you get into Check, Please? Like the floor is yours. How did I get into Check, Please? I was in hockey fandom, hockey RPF fandom, um, and just kind of came upon it because it was a pretty popular thing in the circles that I was in. I've been involved in fandom for about 20 years Check Please is one of those fandoms that I kind of came in and out of. Um, so I was there for, you know, the first year. I don't remember my reactions to anything that first time around. Um, but I do. Um, I remember stopping <laughs> and I remember exactly when I stopped. How much do we care about spoilers here? So um, I stopped reading around the time um, that Jack and Biddy told their like little Samwell friend group uh, like came out to them and they were all like, oh, we already knew. That was really like, I was like, no, we're not doing this. Um, So that's when I came in and I actually wasn't. It was a pretty like solitary fandom at that point. I didn't have like lots of friends who were in Check Please fandom. And so I didn't find out until like years later that um, some other folks that I eventually became friends with who were also in hockey fandom had um, attempted to give some constructive criticism to um, Ngozi and that didn't go well to the point where they were like more or less like ran out of check please fandom by other fans um and like just are not interested weren't weren't then and are not interested in talking about it anymore so i think that my feelings about the comic combined with like sort of secondhand feelings about the fandom um was very like very much colored by those things um and so you know, when I did dip into Check Please fandom, um, between my first uh, failing out and 
coming back this time, I really struggled to find those like OMG CP critical spaces. And when I did find them, find them, it was very like, this is homophobic. This is blah, blah, is this is like that kind of thing. And not necessarily actually like narrative criticism or literary criticism. Um, and even now, honestly, I find that to be like really hard to find, um, which is probably directly connected with um, Secret, your experience of these people responding to the reckless. I also experienced it in my other fandoms. So this sort of like anti-criticism kind of thing, it's not, um, I think it's particular in Check, Please, but I don't think that it's like only here at all. So um, my other slash former question mark fandom is um, like the fandom PH, Dan and Phil, these like out to like British YouTubers. Um, And uh, I was, I was not a BNF. I was not that popular, but I was like relatively popular of a writer for a while. And um, my real sort of the beginning of the end for me was definitely when I made comments about another person who was definitely more popular than me, who was also being really shitty about the concept of people being critical of their uh, hugely popular fanfic um, in the sense of like, you know, this person's getting like a couple thousand hits every time they post a chapter. Um, and it's all just like huge amounts of praise. But if someone is like, hey, I don't think this thing really works or like, or even to the level of like, hey, this sentence doesn't really work. That is like the thing. Um, That's the thing that they really zeroed in on. And I, and it had a a noticeable chilling effect, not only on people talking about that particular work, but just like criticism in that fandom in general. And I thought it was bullshit. I still think it's bullshit. I said it. Um, <laughs> I said it on my blog, and of course, people took it to their to their made it part, uh, brought it to their uh, attention, um, which I sort of knew was going to happen, but I didn't care. Um, and that was really like, like I said, the beginning of the end for me, um, which was hard then, and now I don't really give a shit. But I still stand by the main idea, which is that. I think people should be allowed to say whatever the fuck they want on their own blogs. Um, And, you know, not to be all like, don't like, don't read, but like, don't seek it out. Tell your followers not to bring it to you. Um, I don't think that it's an exact like one-to-one comparison to what we're talking about with Check Please, but like, that's my stance. (laughs) And I, you know, the concept of like meanness, I think is really like, I think the way that fandom talks about it right now is like really unhelpful um, and really not conducive to be to creating community, whatever that. What I think we ought to do is basically start by just talking a little bit about like, what do we mean when we say meanness? And as a corollary to meanness, this concept of hate, something that I see getting thrown around a lot recently and perhaps more so even than the word mean is the word hate and the concept of haters. So I've seen, in fact, like Ngozi dismiss people who have criticisms of check plays as haters. And I've had people remark on my comments about check please indirectly by saying, wow, you really hate Ngozi or you really hate the comic. 
So it seems like in some ways these terms are kind of linked to each other and also to the concept of criticism. So I think really the first thing we ought to do is basically just like define what it is that we're talking about in this episode. I think it's possible to produce criticism like without being mean. And it is a skill. Like it's really hard to basically tell somebody that you disagree with them or you dislike what they're making without it coming across as insulting or offensive. But just because it's a skill that you have to develop doesn't mean it's impossible. In fact, it's very possible. And there are like a million different ways to tell somebody that you disagree with or dislike what they're producing without it seeming like a personal attack or even necessarily criticism. I would say that like good concrete doesn't necessarily sound like concrete. And that must feel nearly impossible if you've never engaged in the process of trying to write concrete to people. Admittedly, it's something that needs practice, the same way that writing a good fanfic needs to be practiced. One of the reasons why people are getting so offended by the criticism that they're getting is because nobody is engaging in the process of like figuring out how to do this. So how would they be able to do it? So then you have an ecosystem where nobody's producing like the kind of criticism that actually is interesting and is helpful and isn't like surface level mean sounding. I think that there's this layer of like people don't know how to talk to each other in fandom in general anymore. Um, I think I talk, I'm like in the notes a little bit later, talk about this, but like this idea of like, fandom as a community I don't know how popular it is anymore um but I think that that's part of it as well is that people's like perceptions of what it sounds like to be talked to um is is like very much like oh my god I like this so much you're so powerful and valid and blah 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 um and I think that that is also like both part of the larger conversation that we're having and also how people like receive constructive criticism is like it's not even oh this kind of stings but you have a point it's like oh my god you have attacked me um because I don't I'm not used to being talked to any way other than like overwhelmingly positive I think that's true. And I also think that general, I guess, polarization of online communication means that there's a lot more to be gotten out of effusive praise and effusive like attack than there is out of anything nuanced. And I know that I, at least when I have like responded to people in a way that's too complicated, they're like, I would never read this. It's too long. Right. And so there's this sort of total dismissal too of like attempting to say things in a like nuanced way. And maybe we can talk more about this too. But I also think that like fandom's general relationship to concrete has changed. It used to be like, yes, please give me concrete. Like when I first entered fandom, that was a very common thing said at the beginning of fic and really, really common to see sort of like, oh, you have a typo or, oh, I didn't really get this character note or whatever in the comments. And I don't know whether that's just where I was online, but that was like very, very common. And then over the years, that has definitely disappeared. And now I think there's a real anxiety around doing that and a real kind of like response, just like you said, queer crops were like a really intense response to getting that kind of criticism. 
that takes it as an attack. I saw somebody say in regard to concrete recently that you should treat creators as if you are talking to your best friend's parents. I, I, I just like don't even know what to do with that. Like creators are not my best friend's parents. Creators are putting artwork out in the world for consumption. They're not like people I'm, you know, eating dinner with. I will say there's a really famous story about someone going to a Smallville convention. I don't remember who this was and like bringing one of the actors sex toys out of a fandom (laughs) circumstance. And I agree, you know, that's inappropriate. You probably shouldn't do that. But I think that the opposite of suggesting you cannot like engage with their artwork because it might hurt their feelings is like really bonkers and damaging. Or that you should only engage with creators in this sort of state of like overly polite, deferential detachment. Like say please and thank you and treat, you know, when you're in their house, you know, treat it with respect and don't broach uncomfortable subjects like sex toys or things you don't like about what they're doing. And yeah, I just like, Probably I should say at the start of this so that nobody is confused. I would say meanness is like personal attacks or unfounded attacks up to and including criticism that doesn't have grounding. And this is all going to sound very like rote or whatever, but like, I hate you and you should die is like not appropriate. Similarly, this fanfic sucks or just like this comic sucks, like period. Like, you know, you should delete this comic. Like you're incompetent. You don't know how to like make comics. You know, you should never write another fanfic. Like, that level of feedback, even if it has some kind of grounding, like it's highly possible that the fanfic and or the artwork that's getting that sort of feedback maybe does have something wrong with it. But the concept of constructive criticism is that if you're going to, you know, tell somebody there's a problem with what they're making, it has to be coming out of the spirit of like communal helpfulness, which I guess goes back to the concept of community that, you know, Queer of Cups is brought up. That like, we're all in this together, learning how to coexist in an ecosystem and just trying to bring somebody down because you, for some interpersonal random reason, just don't like them is completely different than basically saying, okay, this person is continually putting out products into the ecosystem of our shared like consumption space. And I feel like there are some things in what they're putting out that like I can see why it's popular, 
but these are the problems I'm having. So how do I find a like place of like on the level criticism that balances an understanding that this person is here producing things for a particular reason that is not necessarily like bad or hostile with the fact that I just don't think that like what they're putting out is like helpful or as good as it could be. So I'm going to try to configure a response to them that is constructive. Are they talking about fandom creators or like you get paid for this, you are creating source material creators. They are talking about creators creating source material. That makes a little bit more sense, but I do think that this is how some people feel about other people in fandom. Right, so I agree. Like, I really agree with your definitions of what meanness is, Um, but I think... And we so don't have to get deep into this, but like the the assumption of what niceness is um, is really is almost at odds with actually creating like long and lasting like personal relationships to me um, because it's so it expects you to be this like super deferential, super like um, what's the word like effusively kind, um, and I just don't understand how you actually engage with people if that's all you're doing or even like talking about like okay I'm so glad that you like this thing but why do you like this thing um and what is it that you like about it um I guess I again (laughs) am apparently a fandom old now um and come from like this school of thought of like uh concrete criticism in general is like a gift um like that someone sat down and took the time to talk to you um, about not only what they like, but what they like, what potential they see. Um, and I just don't, I mean, even like in like building personal relationships with y'all, like that is grounded in like the reason that I like give a shit about y'all's opinions. The reason why, like, I'm like, oh, I love talking to these people, um, is because I get something more than I liked this thing, period. Um, And so I guess that's just like my ultimate confusion. Um, And this is probably so off topic from where we should be now um, with the uh, assertion that like you should treat creators like people's parents. It's like, then how do you build relationships with them? Like just because someone can like write a thing, whether they're getting paid for it or not, um, doesn't make them different (laughs) than you. Um, And it doesn't mean that like they should be treated with like a level of, formality and honor just because like they wrote a thing and may or may not have gotten paid for it like okay (laughs) i mean for that matter so too with parents but one of this person's follow-up tweets was specifically and no i don't care how you actually treat your own best friend's parents but it's like the idea of putting certain kinds of people on certain kinds of pedestals and presuming that like everybody on every pedestal has a specific like code of behaviors that are like the only way you're able to interact with them is not really helpful. It is not helpful. It's also like uh, capitalist and white supremacist and patriarchal. <laughs> like that is... Um... Yeah, 
the the idea that like because you create source material and because you like have gotten paid for it and you're probably a white man so like I have to like respect you more and like the idea that like oh you should like respect your parents in this particular way like it's all like actively fucked up but the way that power moves through fandom depending on where you are in the conversation and then what kinds of labels get attached to you based on the power or perceived power like in that conversation is totally related to this and the fact that creators are no matter what level of source material you're creating whether you're creating like check please you know as your like summer hobby off from school or if you are like the guy in charge of Marvel Studios, you have like a certain amount of power over that particular text. And so the way that people treat you obviously are informed by other kinds of power too, right? But like, but the fact that you should be deferential to like, what's his face, Marvel Studios guy, because he has some sort of like textual authority supports the idea that like the narrative belongs to the creator only. And that's a really weird thing to support in fandom. Like it's a really strange thing to feel and see and to have defended by other fans as this like sort of ultimate authority over a text. And it's this hierarchical relationship, which then feeds into, you know, other, other kinds of power. Look, most kids who are interacting in that way with like their best friend's parents are not really in a position to actually do anything about like the best friend's parents behavior. But like, again, it's, you know, presuming that just because somebody is like parents, they're adults who have a certain kind of stature that like deserves a certain kind of treatment. When in fact, a lot of parents are like not great people, you know, everybody just being like, okay, well, you know, they're the parents, we're just gonna like let them do their thing is part of how like a system of like, I don't wanna just say abuse, but like, you know, that's how a system of like mistreatment of children that creates like monsters. This is also all presuming that the only audience for criticism is the creator of the thing that's being criticized. And I can't believe I didn't write this on the outline anywhere. But like the discourse that exists within criticism is largely for like other consumers. It's like when I write a, you know, critique of check please on my blog, camillier.tumblr.com, it's not really because I think like Ngozi is going to see it and be like, oh, okay. It's because I'm trying to create a conversation with other fans. I'm trying to get fans who think about the comic the same way that I think about it to recognize that I'm thinking about it that way and build a connection with them. Like, you know, looking back at what Queer of Cups said about like, you know, how we kind of ended up networked together in this podcast. But also, like, I'm trying to express for people who don't think about the comic the way that I do, why I think about the comic the way that I do. And if somebody's going to reblog my post and say that they disagree with it, I would consider it a continuation of the conversation if they reblogged it and said, 
this doesn't really work for me and here's why. I understand where you're coming from, but in the interest of mutual understanding, I'm going to lay out my response to what you said. Like that to me is a like valid response. And that's part of what I think the sort of critical mechanism in fandom, I don't know, used to be through the through the creation of meta or should be. I'm not sure. But a lot of the conversation is assuming that like, oh, if you say something bad about the comic, you're hurting Ngozi's feelings or you're hurting. um, I think his name is Kevin Feige. F-E-I-G-E, the head of Marvel Studios. Am I right? Comment below. (laughs) I don't know how to pronounce it. (laughs) Thanks. Yeah, I mean, it's not it's not that I think that like those people are going to see like the shit that I'm writing on my, um, you know, hundred, hundred and fifteen person follower blog that I never tag things on. It's that I think that the people who are hanging out in the space that I'm in are going to see it. And maybe that's like you know, a line that I'm throwing out to other fans so that I can continue having conversations with people, none of whom I expect will agree with me 100%. I mean, this is also how fandoms survive. Like, this and creating fan works and maybe those two things are how fandoms continue after a source material has ended, Um, which is another reason why I'm like, we should be happy about this. Criticism, at least for me, is like how I develop a relationship to and deepen my reading of a text. I also remember the first time I ever got beta read by somebody, I was in like high school and it was like such a joy to have someone deeply, deeply read my work and be like, this doesn't work and here's why. And it felt like such a to have such close and special attention paid to my writing in that way was like this totally new experience. And it was really amazing. And, and since that time, I've like carried that with me. There's like something amazing about really deeply reading a piece of text, whether it's fanfic, whether it's a source text, whether it's a novel, whatever. And criticism for me, oftentimes when I post things on my blog, I like literally do not assume anyone is reading it. Cause I'm like, why would anyone read this 10 paragraphs about this? Like, shot of Jack's chest that I am relating to Jonathan Taves like very deeply for some reason, you know? And then sometimes what will happen is that people do respond, but they don't respond in the way that Secret is saying, which is like, I disagree with you. Let me continue that conversation. I've been lucky enough to have some of those conversations like... In fanfic, I've written people have commented and been like, I did not like this. Let me tell you why. And I was like, oh boy, delicious. But on Tumblr, what often happens is someone's like, you're wrong. I can't believe you would say this. And I'll tell you why you're wrong. And it's because you wrote a fanfic about an 18 year old when you were 21. So you're a pedophile. Sometimes you can disagree with criticism in a way that is like continuing a conversation and is also further deeply reading. And sometimes you can continue the conversation in a way that it's like you are a pedophile. And one of those things is harder to build community with. This is one of the problems with the word problematic, right? It's like... I can say that this thing is problematic and then I don't have to, unless I want to, I don't have to tell you why. Or I can say, oh, it's problematic. We should not engage with this. And that's the end of the conversation. And the sort of weird crossover of like 
online social justice spaces with fandom is... I have so many thoughts. Oh, no. Um, I can say that this thing is bad. I can say that this thing is some sort of ist. And now I don't have to engage with it. Whereas as opposed to like, I'm going to engage with like this, this feeling, this discomfort, this like, it is creating a problem within me. Let me think about and talk about why Um, that doesn't happen. And also, Tumblr literally physically like discourages that from happening, because it is the worst website that we as a fandom could have possibly landed on. Oh, I am so happy to hear you say that because I have been bitching about that for a very long time. Tumblr was built to recycle monetizable advertising content with no ability for there to be discourse about or comments upon that content. It is inherently, like from its construction, built to not support the kind of activities that fandom had previously engaged in. That's why it's such a bad site for fandom. And like at this point, it's like, what year is it? Uh, It's 2021, I think. We're all on it. And it seems like everything that could have possibly killed it has not killed it. So at a certain point, being angry about Tumblr is kind of a waste of my energy, but that's awesome. I've never actually heard anybody else like articulate that. Usually it's me being like, this this is a bad website. Or it's people just saying like, ugh, this dumb hell site. And like, they don't actually like get into why the site is so bad. One of the questions that I think Secret wrote on our outline is, is it possible to be inadvertently mean or hateful? And I think Tumblr is really good, just as a call, I'm not saying any specific group, but like culturally, as a website, really good at taking everything in the worst possible faith. And I think that this impacts some people more than others, depending on other usually attributes about how they talk, how they are online, whatever. There's like lots of things that could impact that. I know that this is something I really struggle with. Like I really will sometimes say things that I think are perfectly fine. And then someone tells me I'm mean, and then I get defensive. And then after I've worked through my defensive reaction, I'm like, oh, they're right. I'm an abject failure. And I need to like go like ritually humiliate myself on my blog so that like they know that I like feel bad about being mean. I've gotten a little better at it over the years, but that's like something I struggle with being being very afraid of being inadvertently mean. Do you guys struggle with that or like how do you kind of feel about that? The reason why I wrote that question down is because it has happened to me throughout my entire life in every context. It happens in fandom constantly where I'll say something that I think is written neutrally or is just a statement of fact or is like a mix of like some crit with like, I don't know, a balance of whatever. And people will just be like, oh, you're a bitch. Or uh, this happened with that rec list. Yeah, basically I wrote this in a way that I thought was an interesting discussion of some fanfic. I didn't say anything was bad. What I did say was I had preferences. And I didn't think that the idea of having a preference was mean because it should be clear from the outset that a preference inherently means like, this is what you like without necessarily indicating anything about what other people like. I am a black person on the internet. If you encounter me, sorry, I am a 
black, fat, queer, like person, like non-binary, but like a fab person on the internet, like all of these things. And I also like have opinions and you know, all of those things pretty much as soon as you encounter me on the internet. So yes, I, I don't, I mean, am I, I don't think I mean, that's not true. Sometimes I mean, and I don't give a fuck. <laughs> and other times they're, they're like, I don't think I mean, I have absolutely gotten messages after like someone has sent me an anonymous message. That's like, can you tell me how you feel about like this particular trope? And I'm like, I don't really like this trope. (laughs) And I will get messages that are like, you are mean and being mean to like smaller, I should say like these things don't happen anymore because no one gives a shit about me anymore, which is freeing. But like you're being mean to smaller blogs by having these opinions. Um, Again, I genuinely think that if you are not performing if you are not performing niceness on the internet and specifically in fandom, and I mean like a character of niceness that I I think is also related to the fact that fandom thinks that fandom is populated by like middle-class white women. If you're not like making it to like that performance, people are going to think that you are mean. I definitely feel when I'm writing posts like, oh, I ought not say exactly what I think without either qualifying it at length so that people understand exactly where I'm coming from or overemphasizing that like, I like check please. I think Biddy is a good character and like on and on all these layers so that people will like come to my criticism, hopefully with like an understanding that like I'm coming, I'm one of the good ones. I'm not just a hater, especially in, South Park fandom, which people are probably sick of hearing about, but in that fandom, certainly I had like a much larger audience. You know, I had like 600 people following my Tumblr instead of like 115. So it was just, you know, slightly more popular. I guess maybe in South Park fandom, that's big fries. I don't know. I definitely have felt like, yeah, you know, I have to be careful what I say because I don't want to trample you know, things that other people care about. And I don't want to trample other fans, regardless of trying to function within these parameters, I still end up like getting called mean or getting told that I like, you know, stifle creativity in the fandom. Like, okay, here's an example. There's a fix series that I love that I have talked about on this podcast before called Call Me Son One More Time. It is about uh, Jack's father and Kent Parson having a sexual relationship. Is it about a lot more than that? Yes, it's about more than that. Go read it. On Fail Fandomanon, which is an anonymous space, I have spent a lot of time praising this fanfic and wrecking this fanfic because I really like it. In anonymous comments, I have been told that other people have been like discouraged from writing this pairing at all because of an overemphasis of like praise for this one fic that is a particular way. Because anonymous people on the internet have a preference for something, that inherently means that there isn't an 
audience for something else. So it's just like, I give up. I don't know what it is that people want. I think this performance of niceness is really related to also the kinds of communication that are acceptable in any given venue. So like the the style of Fail Fandomenon, one of my favorite places to cause problems on the internet, like the style of talking there is very, very different from talking on Tumblr. And if you try to bring one style to the next, like you will not be taken seriously. So there's like a particular kind of communication or kind of like, you know, language you're supposed to use in any given context. And it took me like five years to figure out Tumblr etiquette. Like I thought on Tumblr, you could communicate with people by reblogging what they wrote in public and responding and saying, oh, this is what I think about this. And it took me five years to realize that nobody wants that. I think that's that's how it works. Like if you put something on your Tumblr and it's not behind a lock, be prepared for other people to reblog it because you are putting it on a site where that is the functionality. Like if you really must make a public post that you don't want reblogged, indicate in the post, please don't reblog this. And then I suppose the etiquette would be don't reblog it. Although still, it's like if you don't want something reblogged, don't put it on Tumblr. I agree with you in theory. Like I still think like I am someone who overshares on the internet. I compulsively share all sorts of horrible information about myself on my Tumblr and I regret it every day. And I, but I, I only share things that I'm like, well, if someone reblogs this, it's fine. I hope they don't because it's embarrassing, but like, it's okay. It's not going to ruin my life. It, it took me a really long time to learn the cues of who would be okay with reblogging and who wouldn't, because it's very rarely explicitly said it's like all about how their blog looks, what, like how, what kind of capital they're using like it's crazy subtle little things that like you're like okay this person probably won't call me a pedophile if I reblog this or I think this person will call me a pedophile but I think it's worth it because of this thing I'm saying one time I just said that Rupi Kaur wasn't a plagiarist she was just a bad poet and someone called me a pedophile so you can't always tell where things are going to go I do think this is also like why different people might consider the same phrase mean versus appropriate, like on AO3 or on LiveJournal, like the sort of like older nested style commenting, there's a different relationship with language than there is in Tumblr. Um, and so you might find the exact same sentence being totally fine on AO3, depending on who it is or whatever, right? That's suddenly like unbearably mean on Tumblr. But it's also ridiculous to think that everyone can or should like completely change how they talk depending on where they are. And then, of course, like as Queer Cups pointed out, it's so contingent on like who you are, who people perceive you to be. If you say things the wrong way, it will wrong quote unquote way it, it can like lead to these assumptions of attack. Right. Strange the context collapse slash very compartmentalized language. Like you'd think they would overlap more, but they kind of don't. AO3 is a site that feels very permanent. It feels like things are very explicitly cited there, S-I-T-E-D. It also gives, you know, apparently not enough. However, it does give users a lot more control about, you know, what is going to happen. Like in response to the works that they post, like you can delete comments. On Tumblr, things feel extremely ephemeral. Like if you don't specifically bookmark it, it can just go into the ether and disappear forever. You also, as soon as you put something onto that site that isn't like 
locked, it can like spin wildly out of control and you have no ability to determine like what gets appended to the thing that you've put out there. So I think that may be part of why people are precious in a certain way on Tumblr, whereas perhaps they wouldn't be on AO3. I also want to add the layer of the perception of privacy um, and and also Discord as like another fandom space, which I also kind of fucking hate. Um, Tomato is very right about like, things being acceptable in one place that aren't acceptable in another. Yeah, I really like Discord as a place to chat um, and do like one-on-one or small group conversation. But my understanding is that like increasingly like fandom is done on Discord, uh, which is problematic (laughs) to use that word. Um, I just don't understand how... I understand the desire for privacy. I I understand the move to Discord as resistance to fandom sort of mainstreaming. I just don't know what you do if you're not like internet savvy enough to find the right Discord link. You used the term problematic earlier and then again recently. I think problematic is an interesting term because it's one of a few things that has sort of slid from like academia into fandom. Uh, The idea of problematizing within, I don't know, academic discourses is related to the kind of historiography of thinking about like, all right, everybody talks about this text and we've all been accepting it up to now, but it's been a few decades and now we're going to problematize it. We're going to look at like you know, what it's actually saying, what stands up to scrutiny, what is still, you know, useful, who did it influence, how were some of those influences productive, how were some of those influences unproductive. And then it kind of creeped, like, crept into fandom. I think because a lot of fans who, like, set the discourse in fandom are ACA fans. They're, like, you know, people who are in academia already and they're used to this term and it is applicable it's interesting like you know if you're in say i don't know some fan check please fandom <laughs> just randomly comes to mind it's very useful to be able to problematize check please to basically say well these are the things that are great about it and this is why it was influential but it has these problematic elements it really only depicts people who are cisgendered and conventionally attractive and so we love the art style and we like that it's influencing other people's art style but here's a problematic element of it I think in academic context, that doesn't mean necessarily throw the whole thing away, but it gets kind of warped when it seeps into fandom. I think this has happened with the term criticism as well. I would say criticism as a term to me means effectively like situating something within a discourse, and yes, I'm thinking of that in the sort of Foucauldian sense, and then analyzing the way that discourse formed. 
and how those discourses impact the thing that you're talking about. That's basically what criticism is. You're situating something in its context. And it's a neutral term to me coming out of academia and coming out of media. But in fandom, it seems to be taken to mean only negativity. And I think this is problematic because nothing that has ever been created exists in a vacuum. Check, please. And its fandom are not hermetically sealed unto themselves. They are networked like within a much wider discourse of other phenomenon, other texts, other creators, other systems, etc. And so the process of critique is to consider Shepley's in relation both to itself and also in relation to like the other cultures it's embedded in. And I don't think that that should be inherently negative. I don't think that's like inherently negative. I don't mean necessarily I want to bash something or that I hate it or that I don't think it's good. But at this point, it's essentially been taken in fandom to be synonymous with like negativity. I just want to add, I think it's not only negativity, right? It's like negativity to this intense degree, which is attack. I don't think that's like necessarily a bad thing. Sometimes you watch something or read something or engage with something and you're like, oh, I liked this. I didn't like this. Here's why. And I don't think that like saying I didn't like this aspect of this work work here's why is an inherently bad thing in fact like in terms of when people call like negative comments or whatever mean what is the purpose of calling someone mean like what's the goal of that circumstance like what do they hope to get out of calling like secret you know you said that jack's tits were too big like you know that's mean like what is the purpose of publicly calling you mean for that comment you know what i mean they are, and I think he needs to have some sort of breast reduction because I just think it's like, what are we fucking doing here? It's insane. It's like, how dare you sexualize Jack Zimmerman? <laughs> Listen, he's French. So, <laughs> to your point about the ways that the word criticism or critique have been, are, are, are interpreted now... I think that the other sort of driving force around like why fandom is the way it is now is like the explosion and popular popularization um, of certain types of social justice um, on Tumblr and specifically like this concept of calling people in or calling them out. You know, like all of these things are together in, in like a fucking soup, right? So there's a concept of um, academic criticism, which I agree is like a fully neutral thing and like does not at all imply that something is like so bad that it needs to be like thrown away or like even necessarily bad at all when it sort of bumps up against this idea of like, oh, this thing is problematic um, or bad or whatever, like it has to be called out. And it becomes this thing where every single time you point out something that is um, perhaps unsatisfactory or maybe even just like interesting to talk about at length, it is like taken as a call out. I think that's just like the sort sort of the like reflexive understanding um, is that 
if people are spending this much time on this thing, then it must be a call out and it must be an attack and it must be hate. The other thing is I think Check Please specifically is situated really interesting in terms of sort of this like old fandom to new fandom kind of thing. There's this real conflict around the idea of criticism the idea of critique and like how much is it our responsibility to to defend not only like other people from critique but even like the author from critique and I think that that's also maybe why check check please in particular is like seems to me to be like particularly explosive and particularly violent around these things generous use of the word violence is because you have these people who sort of initially came in and maybe we are some of the holdouts um from this older type of fandom where like criticism is fine it is a value neutral thing bumping up against uh younger folks some younger either literally or in fandom uh who are like whoa (laughs) like we only talk about the things that we like unless they are super racist in which case maybe we don't talk about those you know mostly it's like too long don't read what kinds of critique get kind of like received in a way that's positive and what kinds of critique get that explosive response I don't know that I have a good answer. I think it depends what venue you are producing the critique in. I think it depends who the audience for the critique is. For example, something I have noticed is that criticism of check plays that is balanced and comes from a standpoint of liking check plays, but thinking it has some, let's say, problems that are worth noting is not well received in a lot of OMGCP critical spaces where people only want to hear that the comic sucks and they don't want to think about it in like a balanced, nuanced way. They think of themselves as functioning in opposition to a Tumblr sphere where the only acceptable comments about check please are praise and like compliments. So I think if you're giving check please criticism generally on Tumblr, you're bound to end up, if you get attention, getting pushback from people who think that you are like being unsupportive and being hateful. But then if you go over into other spaces where people are like, okay, I'm here to criticize the comic. If you try to give the comic any kind of like props or if you like things about it, you're not really gonna be well received in that space either. And my experience, of being a check please fan of somebody who inherently likes the comic and likes a lot of things about it and thinks that Ngozi is like really talented and does certain things really well is that that perspective doesn't hold in a space where people are just angry. And on the other hand, my criticisms of the things she doesn't do so well and the things I don't like so much about the comic is not really well received in that other space either. And one of the reasons why, I don't know, I think having this podcast is like specifically good for me, the audience for the podcast, is because there just really aren't a lot of spaces where I think you can discuss this comic like... I don't know, in a way that's not fully committed to either position. 
where you're like, well, this is a complicated text. I'd like to sort of work out like why I feel this way about it, but I don't want to just throw the whole thing away, take Kent Parson out and trash everything else. I do think there's like a particular experience I've had really similar to that. But my problem is that I like Biddy as a character. Like I think he is a bananas weirdo and I am obsessed with how nuts he is. But this makes me an enemy of all parties, it feels like sometimes, because people who are critical of the comic hate Biddy, in my experience of like, touching into those spaces to be like, oh, this is not the place for me because I'm like fascinated by this like self-obsessed little like man. Um, and then in other places, when I try to be like, Biddy isn't so great or could be not so great in like these particular ways, I'm gonna explore that in fandom, I get, really, really intense flashback at times because people I think really identify with him and really like, I don't know, feel protective over him. <laughs> Although he's not real, everybody. He is in fact made of pixels. Like he doesn't have any feelings, it's fine. But people people who do have feelings, right? Identify with him in some way or have some kind of protective feeling about him and then feel like, you know, the critique touches on that in a way that's commenting on them and not just on this like, <laughs> Yeah, on this bundle of pixels who really just wants to get married. I think that's part of the way critique of OMGCP is received differently is like depending on the depending on how self-identified the audience might be with whatever's being critiqued. And I think that's something that like problematizes um, the the use of the word critique because for me, critique is not personal. Critique is like not about the author. It's not about the readers. It's about me and my relationship to the text, but it's not even really about me. It's about like, oh, what I think. It's not about my feelings all the time or only, right? And I think that's also related to that explosive response that you were talking about before Queer of Cups is like, there's an emotional response. Even what's been being put out is like, primarily about ideas, there's an emotional response. So it's like a different register of reading. And I think that's also part of the problem maybe. We are two sides of the same coin in that I cannot stand Biddy, but also find him fascinating um, and want to write all the words about him and his like, probably like fancy Easter dinner that's happening in some fictional world right now. Um, to the point about like the OMGCP critical spaces, that has been my experience of them. It feels good at first, right? Because you're like so steeped in a fandom that seems to be like 100% fully behind. How dare you say anything other than like, we worship our queen. But after a while, it just gets boring. Like it just gets boring to like, want sort of single dimensionally like hate this thing that you're also spending so much time on. Having spent so much time in one or one, one, one of these spaces or the other that I feel like I don't know how to regulate my like feelings around or I feel like a I don't know how to regulate and B like I don't know how it's going to be taken when I say either I really like this thing or like I don't like this thing so much because because I've also like experienced that like really intense reaction from both sides yeah, I'm I'm in the same place basically with these spaces. It's like, yeah, Biddy is a really interesting character. He's the sort of person where if he was a real person, I would probably not like him very much. But he's not a real person. And so engaging with him through fan fiction and through like meta 
or like fan works generally is really interesting and really satisfying. Like the term femphobia comes to mind constantly when I like see what people have to say about Biddy like in these spaces. Is Biddy a perfect human being? Like, no, obviously, like if you read the comic, like on a surface level, he's just not like he's pretty flawed at the same time it's like he's also caught in a web of systems that that like position him sometimes as the person in a situation with the most power but oftentimes not and so imputing a lot of like negative attributes and a lot of like negative motivations to him when he's like caught basically between like an economic and social situation that doesn't necessarily give him very many options or hasn't really like encouraged him to think of like other ways his life could go and like responding to that without thinking about why your reaction to Biddy is what it is. That really annoys me for whatever reason, not because Biddy is, you know, like a, like an ooh-woo, like, you know, perfect angel child as like the creator of the comic has said of him, but because it indicates to me a sort of lack of critical thinking or an underdeveloped like mechanism of self-examination among the people who are looking at this text and feeling critical about it, but not necessarily thinking through why perhaps as much as they believe they are. Yes, all the things that you said about Biddy and Biddy is being written by a Black woman, right? And this thing that I've seen a few times of people responding to, you know, valid or invalid criticisms of check, please, as like, why are you, why are you being hypercritical of this writer who is also marginalized in all of these ways? Also feels like a lack of critical thinking to me. (laughs) It's like, okay, so you like read a couple, like how to not be a racist 101, like Tumblr posts, and you're like, got it. How are you thinking about your feelings and your reactions to like Biddy as a character? How are you thinking about like those feelings layered over the fact that like Biddy as a character who, in my opinion, is written written from a place of some real patriarchal and like homophobic um, ideas about like what a feminine gay man is like and what roles he fulfills in socially. And like, how do you feel about the fact that those like criticisms are being levied against a black woman? I think that all of those things are like just much harder than people pretend that they are and require much more critical thinking and much more, probably like much more consideration of like all of those layers than just being like, oh, well, I can't, I have to love Check, Please, because it's gay and it's written by uh written by a black woman or i have to hate check please because it's like you know insert criticism here to get back to the original reason we're talking like i think like 
saying, oh, you're being mean because of this thing is just like such a cop out. It is it to me is like I am I feel challenged and uncomfortable about the fact that like you are thinking about things more critically than I am and more critically than I want to. That defensiveness that we can't have different reactions to this piece of text. We all have to be on the same page, which I have felt in OMGCP critical spaces. Yes, but I haven't. No, no one in those spaces has ever been like particularly mean to my face, just behind my back. No big deal. They didn't know I was in the discord, so they didn't know I could see it. Certainly on Tumblr, right? Like this idea that like we cannot have different reactions, even though I'm on my blog and you're on your blog and I haven't tagged this. I don't know how you found it or whatever. Right. But this idea that we have to have exactly the same reaction or you are engaging in oppression is like very one note and very paternalistic, really condescending to Ngozi as a creator to me in some way. Like, oh, I can't think about anything she makes because like we have different I want to be respectful of her experiences as I would hope she would be respectful of my experiences, you know, because we are not having the same experience, but we're both like marginalized in various ways. Intersectionality is real. I want to recognize that our power dynamic is like whatever it might be. Um, Although I'm never talking to her, so it's not like we're one-on-one anyway, but I want to recognize all of that complexity and at the same time to suggest that like you are not allowed to critique something because the author is marginalized in some way is so deeply troubling to me. It just makes me feel crazy. I don't even know what words to use. It just like makes me feel crazy. I talked to her. She's very nice. She doesn't have any other option than to be very nice though. (laughs) Yeah. And like, uh, you know, I, I talked to her like at her convention table at this point about four years ago. So I don't know, maybe her willingness to just like engage with fans um, is is different than it was. Approaching somebody at their table at a convention basically is like as close to a safe space as you can have an interaction with fans. Like they almost certainly would not be approaching you to like buy and have you sign your items unless they like you. Still, she in my one interaction with her was super patient and about as generous as you could think somebody would be in that kind of space. To the point about like we can't have differing opinions. Who are we performing for? Um, why can't we have those differing opinions? Who's watching? The other reason that I love Check Please fandom the first time, other than the like homophobia question mark of the whole like, oh, we already knew, which I have sort of like more complicated feelings about now, um, is because um, for both of my degrees, I went to the University of Alabama, big college uh, football school. And the thought of a, at that point, pro, but like going pro sports player coming out to his group of friends in a public space was just like so unrealistic that I was just like, no, I can't do this anymore. And I stopped reading it for like a year and a half. When does critique become mean? Is it mean when you have a lot of followers? Is it mean when you engage with other people rather than just like writing essays on your blog, when you use a popular tag, like if you use the wrong quote unquote tag because you're tagging something you're talking about, but that tag is typically used for support. Like when does it become mean? Unsurprisingly, my stance is I don't know that it's mean under any of those circumstances. 
I take issue with the idea that, so I have roughly 1,800 followers on Tumblr. I don't think that that makes my obligation to anyone, but particularly like any of the fandoms that I'm a part of any different than when I had like, like any number. I understand. So like we have used like BNF, like big name fan a couple of times. Um, and I think that even that is a real like moving target. I would push back against the assertion that like even like a BNF who like actually knows the creator is in any way like obligated to hold back their opinion. But the thing that makes this complicated, and again, I think this is where this conversation is going to end up going. She functions in some ways as if she is a fan of her own characters. But then as soon as other people don't do fandom the way that she likes, all of a sudden she reverts to this mode of like authorship or ownership where she has to state like, these are my characters. I don't necessarily blame her for this. Something I've reiterated like many times in many spaces is like, I think it's probably quite a mind fuck and I don't know anybody who would do much better at you know, making a goofy haha, like, you know, slashy webcomic about the thing you're obsessed with. And then all of a sudden finding yourself the figurehead at the center of this group of like random internet weirdos. I think that's probably really tough to navigate. And there's also like, you know, systemic factors probably dictating like why people would have a hard time with that, like broadly speaking. And I do mean like very broadly speaking. It's, it's basically like playing two roles, essentially both the owner of the IP and also like the the biggest fan. Someone on the outline said that the current assertion of not being mean any anywhere ever feels like surveillance. That is totally true. I, I found that really interesting because I've never heard it articulated that way, but that is totally how it feels. In this particular fandom, which maybe we'll kind of wrap back around to, because of Ngozi's presence and because of Ngozi's like semi-frequent commenting on how the fandom is acting, like in paratexts and blog posts, whatever, um, including some which have now been deleted because she must have thought better of them. That sense of, to borrow another Foucauldian phrase, the panopticon, really impacts the fandom in like a very serious way. Behaviors that are perhaps not great, but that defend Ngozi's status are not mean. And behaviors that don't defend Ngozi's status necessarily and by Ngozi's status, I, I mean specifically like her authorial intent, not like Ngozi herself as a figure, because I think people actually like are really mean to Ngozi sometimes in really fucked up ways. Like, I just also want to say that like there are sometimes people who are mean in this fandom in ways that we talked about at the very beginning, like personal attacks. I think it's very rarely directed at her. I think a lot of it is in these like private, like snipey spaces. And then somebody comes in and is like, you know, oh, it's really gross how people talk about Ngozi on FFA, or it's really gross how people talk about Ngozi, like in this little, like, you know, cul-de-sac on Tumblr or whatever. And it is gross. And it's worth having somebody come in and like noting it. But I don't necessarily know that those conversations are getting up to her specifically. 
Yeah, that's fair. I, I don't know how much she sees or, or what people see and send her and, and so on. But I do think that sometimes, you know, people talk about her in ways that are just like pretty gross. So I think that behaviors that we might otherwise classify as mean or like might otherwise be called mean if they're sort of like defending the status quo of Czech police fandom as Ngozi approves of it are not called mean. And then behaviors that like may not otherwise be called mean are called that if they somehow like destabilize that that Czech please approved way of doing fandom. So I would say at this point, my definition of somebody who's a BNF is either somebody whose presence and content has saturated either a fandom or fandom as a space broadly, or it's somebody who has enough professional success that they have transcended the fandom ecosystem and are bridging the fandom ecosystem and the industry or the commercial space. And on that note, I would say that somebody like Ngozi is a BNF. She has her own mononymic presence within both the fandom space and the commercial space that now she's able to say, use her like public facing presence to get attention on her fan works. Can you be a BNF in your own fandom is something that Queer of Cups is pushing forward. I think it's contextual and I think it's possible that Ngozi might be one in part because she has always acted perhaps more so than other creators I'm familiar with or aware of as if she too is participating in the process of making like fan art for the characters in her own comic. And like, you know, her creation of say zines where she feels like she can create any pairing artwork at any rating level like of different characters even if they're not canon yet is like how a fan would act not somebody who is the creator or the author and i think it makes perfect sense like why she feels that way in part because she's trying to tell a specific story but i have seen her like even recently basically talking about how she sort of like ships jack and biddy and more historically talking about how she, say, doesn't ship the frogs or whatever. Like, she thinks about her own work the way that, like, a fan of her work would think about her work. And more to the point, she is still in fandom. Like, she still has side blogs where she's drawing, like, Sam Bucky art or Star Wars fan art or, like, I don't know, she was really into, like, Jeeves and Wooster maybe about a year ago. So it's like, she's a fan, but because she's also like prominent and successful in her own right, she's sort of broadened her fandom platform in a way that makes her like a BNF. Like if you see her Star Wars art, it's more likely than not that your reaction would be something like, oh, this looks like Check Please. I wonder if Ngozi drew this. Yeah. I think that that's so interesting and makes it makes this this layer of like opposition to critique and also like using slash weaponizing my fandom against 
people who might critique me that like historically happened so unsatisfactory. Like what you're describing is such an interesting way to be an author and a like creator of like source text. Like this sort of idea of being a fan and interacting with fans as a fan of your own work, like opens up so many possibilities to me of like what Check Please could be and could have been and like ways that, you know, all of us could have interacted um, when it was still active. I mean, I guess like even the like sort of notes to different strips even function in that sort of way. Um, And I wish we could have seen other ways that 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 could have played out. In 2009, a fan writing on Dreamwith under the the handle Obsession-Inc. basically wrote a post that has become pretty influential, like almost canonical in terms of how fandom is characterized, where Obsession-Inc. identifies two main types of fans. There are affirmational fans and there are transformational fans. And affirmational fans are people who are very interested in like reiterating the canon, preserving the canon, collecting things, etc. And as Obsession Inc. writes out, these are the types of fans that creators usually want to have because they're people whose primary project in fandom is like confirming and reaffirming what the creator wants and what the creator thinks. Transformational fans are, for the most part, the kinds of fans that like I associate with and probably probably you guys too. They're the people who are through the mechanism of making fan works, questioning the text, extending the text like past the place where the creator wanted it to go and just generally like kind of disregarding in theory what it is that the creator necessarily wanted. Like authorial intent is somewhat less important in terms of transformational works, like if only from the perspective of, according to Ngozi, check please ends when Biddy graduates college. So if you write a fanfic about, you know, 10 years in the future for Biddy, you are inherently questioning, say, the authorial intent that the story of Biddy end when he graduates college. I feel like a lot of fans lately, like, transformational fans who are in the kind of like fanfic and meta making side of things are kind of now adopting an affirmational approach. Like I'm going to make a transformative work, but I'm going to make it in such a way that the creator wouldn't like disapprove of it, or it doesn't necessarily complicate the creator's intent. I think that's really, really true in Check, Please. And it's related to that idea of surveillance, too, because Ngozi will comment on things sometimes. Like, there's this infamous... What is it called when she writes things alongside the comic? Blog post. She's making a joke about Jam, and then she says, this comic, in this comic, Biddy gets what he wants. That's what the comic's about. If that's not your Jam, you know, maybe it's not your Jam, but that's the Jam of the comic. Biddy gets what he wants. That's a very explicit comment on what's happening in the fandom. And I think there's that's a really deep reason for the affirmational character work that tends to go on and check please transformative works and the kind of defense that people like put up when they see transformative works 
that are not affirmational, which I have, that's been like one of my primary relationships with the rest of Check Please fandom, other than my little corner of it is, is having this specific conversation about how my work is not affirmational enough. So it's something I think a lot about. This makes me think about that Tumblr post that like floats around that it was like, do you think Naomi Novik looks at like the fan fiction, the like incest fan fiction or whatever, and like shakes her head and it's like, this isn't what I want. And like, I don't think this is blowing up her spot. Astolit, who is Naomi Novik, is like, nope. So this is my strong stance. Mainstreaming fandom was a mistake. <laughs> um, and it has wrought bad things for fandom at large. And I think that mainstreaming fandom is part of like why this is possible because I I don't give a shit. A lot of conversation went around in the Dan and Phil fandom, which is slightly different because it's like a real person fiction <laughs> fandom where it was like, oh, well, what if Dan and Phil say that they don't want you to write fan fiction about them or they don't like it when you write this certain type? And like, I don't give a shit. But like, it is a very different thing when that is very feasible. Like in that fandom, we know that they are online. We know that they read our stuff. They like retweet it. Um, they like retweet art all the time. And so it is likely that they have an opinion on those things in the same way that Ngozi is like very upfront about the fact that like she has an opinion and I largely wouldn't care if it didn't also come with this like idea of surveillance and this idea of like we now have to police ourselves so that we are performing in this way that is acceptable and also because it's capitalism all along that's also marketable so we can't do weird shit we can't write abo fan fiction we can't like write these things that are um problematic unless it's like behind like i guess we don't have f locks anymore so that only people who actually have AO3 accounts can read it. I think that that is like all of those things together. That's what happens. And so like the affirmational um, style of doing fandom isn't, of course, nothing exists in a vacuum, but it's not just that you're affirmational because you like this writer and you want them to like feel good. It's also like this policing aspect of like, okay, now we have to like tuck our shit in and like sweep things under the rug and they can only know about the things that usually are um, not that weird not that kinky again like not unmarketable i would love it if you could maybe like expand on what you see as mainstreaming fandom a little bit because i think i mostly agree to a certain extent however you know i i don't want fandom to be like a shameful thing that people have to hide like if somebody asks me you know what my podcast is about or like what i'm spending my sunday afternoon doing i don't want to have to lie about it or act like it's something that i don't do or fear for like my job i don't want to like be afraid essentially that this is like a vulnerability however you know i also agree that like part of what makes this fun and like part of what makes it like interesting and productive and we'll talk about this maybe like oppositional is that it's not in the mainstream the way that like you know watching the bachelor is let's if you have more thoughts on like what mainstreaming means to you i i would be interested in that 
Yeah. Yeah. I see your point. I think perhaps a better word for it is like profitable or even like accessible. I think that when fandom became a thing that is MTV is talking about, like send us your fanfic uh, for like Teen Wolf, people can see whether they're in it or not. And so all of the weird quirky shit is also on display and it's on display to people who don't care or don't care to learn the the particular culture and maybe even don't even see it as a culture. They see it as like a hobby. I think that that has had some real unfortunate repercussions on the ways that people see and do fandom. And to your point, like, I also don't want the fact that I write weird fan fiction on the weekends um, potentially jeopardize my job. And I don't know if we can have both maybe that's a question that's like much bigger than like this conversation but like I really don't know if we can have both if it can be like something that isn't I don't I mean obviously like I don't think fandom is like a thing that is inherently shameful but I don't know if we can be in some ways inaccessible or like not so on display without people also being like oh, that's that like weird shit and like immediately maligning it. Also, I feel like I should say, I totally recognize like the privilege and the um, difficulty that comes along with something being like inaccessible. So like, I'm not unaware of those things. I just like, I think that we lost a lot when fandom became a thing that you could profit off of. And that makes me sad. (laughs) Another shortcoming of Tumblr as a platform is, in fact, its ease of use. Because now you don't have to do very much to participate in fandom. All you need to do is be able to circulate other people's content. And again, I understand that, you know, the type of production that went into producing zines, producing, you know, websites, producing conventions, producing all of these things that allowed fandom to function pre-Tumblr is expensive and time-consuming and requires, in many cases, being able-bodied and, like, on and on, all these things that, you know, lead to exclusion. Also, a lot of the time, like, at least my early experience in fandom was highly educated people, like, PhD-level people. And it's like, well, in order to participate, like, in this ecosystem, you know, you have to be able to bring like a certain, you know, quality level that's directly linked to having had like a certain kind of upbringing and education. So I think you're right to peg that here. Regardless, I think that, you know, all of a sudden with Tumblr, there was this like democratization of fandom where you needn't produce anything or indeed really even think about what you are contributing to the fandom, you can become a participant in the fandom without being a lurker and without making anything. And um, I've said this like on my South Park blog several times, but yeah, I mean, I think it just makes like fandom a sort of more disposable practice that doesn't require a certain level of, I I don't know what it is, like commitment, follow through, like seriousness, like all of these things sound bad, 
but I think that's the I think that's the outcome. I think that's why it feels so much less community oriented now, because to be part of a community, you have to be active in a community, right? Like that's how communities are built. And I say community with like all caveats attached to it. Sorry to bring it back to this, but the pedophilia conversation like really gets to me. I I haven't resolved my feelings about it. I bring it up on this podcast way too often because I just like am not... I have not figured out how to deal with it yet. Part of that reason is because for me as a kid who is not necessarily always in the safest of places, having adults online living stable lives that I could look at and talk to was extremely important for me. And I met those people through online writing and fandom. And so cross-generational, like seeing like adult queer women who had relationships and stable relationships with their families and stable places to live, like stable jobs, like for me, That was hugely important. The fandom things that those people were producing were very oppositional. We'll get into this later, but very oppositional because they were taking these things that felt like totally alienating and turning them into something that I could learn about adulthood with in this very real way. The way that fandom becomes less and less community oriented, less and less about like, it's not that I want it to be a totally private space, but as like the respectability of like American politics just like sort of like trickles through it. For me, it feels less like an like a space that's affirming for fans and more maybe more like a space that's affirming for creators rather than fans, which then turns the whole power of the whole thing in this other direction. One of the conversations that I see in sort of transformational fandom that has to do with like, how do we become respectable is, well, you can't write fandom about XYZ topic, or you can't ever engage with XYZ idea, you know, or you are an abuser. For me, there was something really, really important about seeing people engage with these complicated kind of kooky kind of crazy ideas in a way that was safe, um, actually very concerned about like the people involved in the community and their safety that was able to engage for the first time with ideas that I couldn't even articulate until I saw someone else talk about them. Do you know what I mean? Part of what mainstreaming fandom has done has like taken away this, it wasn't safe for everybody and it never was, but it has taken away like some of the things about it that made it possible to have those kinds of like real relationships and conversations and turn it instead into a content producing machine, but the content isn't even like deep content. It's like affirmational recreations of the thing. The idea that fandom is basically in opposition to media or to corporate owned media or a resistance practice effectively stems most indelibly from the work of a scholar named Henry Jenkins. Other people have also pushed this idea, and I think he gets an outsized amount of credit. Regardless, he is the person who is largely cited for developing this concept in his 1992 book, Textual Poachers. The idea that fandom is a resistance activity because it is the folk reclaiming their stories from corporate ownership. And there is now pushback on the idea that fandom is a thoroughly activist or resistant position, but the structure of fandom as I sort of was first exposed to it long before I ever read Textual Poachers was essentially that this was something that you were doing because you wanted to push back on 
what was in the text and what the creator had given you. In my experience, largely this was, I was looking for male-male relationships being depicted in this space. I saw and read The Lord of the Rings. I envisioned something homoerotic in there. It wasn't in the text. I looked at fandom. Fandom gave me something. It pushed back on the text by basically saying that which is subtext is now text. But just because this is kind of the way this has been set up doesn't mean it also can't be uh, problematized. Um, This podcast was uh, brought to you by the word problem. (laughs) Um, I have a lot of problems. We create a lot of problems for other people. That's why we think that's why they think that we're mean. I agree with the idea that fandom at its core is meant to be. um, Okay. see, there are lots of like, what do you mean by fandom? So like when I say fandom, I mean transform transformative fandom. I mean, people who write fan fiction and fucking What's what's the word for people who write like fandom songs? Filk? Is that a thing? Yeah, it is. It's filk. <laughs> oh, filk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like that is what I mean when I say fandom. And I think that those things, because you are like taking someone else's, their text and turning it into something else. I think that that is like oppositional. I do. It feels like that is something that becomes harder and harder with the shrinking of fandom as a community, with the sort of tangling up of fandom with the actual source text, with the actual corporations that are often creating these things. I'm not going to call them the Puritans because that's not nice. I don't think that the young people, um, specifically like age young people who are coming into and growing up in fandom now, who specifically want people to not talk about unpleasant things. I don't think that they are thinking to themselves, I am doing this so that when people want to make the 57th Star Wars, they don't accidentally come across some weird sex shit um, and that makes it less profitable. I don't think they think that, but I do think that that is part of what is happening. And so while I do think that like this whole hobby practice is like oppositional at its core, I think that there are some both vested and passive interests in making it less so. Someone said that there used to be a sharper distinction between corporate-owned media and the folk. I think AO3 feels a lot less oppositional than like small private websites, small idiosyncratic fanfic archives than I used to. I used to like read Stargate Atlantis fanfic on or whatever, you know, even though it is in fact less corporate than Tumblr, which as you may know, has been owned by a variety of corporations and is now owned by WordPress, a corporation looking to make money. But for some reason, AO3 feels like this like institutional thing, which people are now feeling oppositional against on Tumblr, which is in fact 
as Secret noted before, like designed to make profit. So it's this really confusing thing, which also I think has to do with aesthetic, maybe, and also has to do with like feeling way more than actuality. Yet I will say that one person's individual blog has a lot less institutional power than the entirety of the AO3. Thinking of fandom as an activist activity, et cetera, where the point is to sort of like push back upon like corporate ownership. I think this was something that had, yes, a lot more validity as tomato, um, referenced. There was a time when if you wanted to reference an episode of Star Trek because you wanted to write a specific fanfic about it, your access to Star Trek was not in your hands. It was in the hands of whether or not Star Trek was profitable at two different junctions. The first junction was the show being canceled in, you know, first in an aborted attempt in 68 and then again in 69. So the people who loved Star Trek and like, you know, connected with it just like couldn't have it anymore. It was just taken off the air because it wasn't considered profitable by like NBC Paramount. But then again, the second issue of access was that whether or not Star Trek was available to you by being aired on TV was dependent upon whether or not your local like NBC affiliate who owned it thought that they could make money off of it by selling commercial time to advertisers. What generated out of this was basically like subculture of people creating tapes of Star Trek and like editing together tapes of Star Trek in order to fuel the kind of like zine based thick culture that sprang up basically in response to corporate ownership of an IP that viewers had imprinted on in a way that they weren't ready for this to be taken away by somebody else as a financial decision. A lot of people looked at this show and saw a lot of subtextual queerness and they were like, well, I want to give actual text to what I'm seeing because I know that it's never gonna happen in the actual thing. And I think something that maybe is actually becoming overlooked by some people who are like, I don't know, a decade or more younger than I am, and I'm not even that old, is that uh, queer, like anything, <laughs> didn't used to be so common in mainstream media or really media at all. And so the idea that merely making two male characters bone in like a not very well written story is in itself like an oppositional act now feels kind of like whatever you can turn on, you know, Netflix and go to like, you know, LGBT rom-coms as a subcategory and like get probably, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of them. But like not too long ago, the idea that like you would see queer characters having these kinds of interactions like in media was in fact like pretty fucking rare. So I do think that this is something where the framing of what is a resistance practice is something that has moving into the future like moving into the present and beyond lost a lot of weight and then sort of looking back at what queer of cups was setting up in terms of fandom becoming profitable the way in which all of a sudden corporate media like ip holders realized that 
people making fan work were part of their customer base and a source of support rather than opposition and that it was possible to like work with these people to further the the value of the brand rather than seeing them as like being resistant to the brand is increasingly complicating the idea that this is like essentially a sort of like socialist pushback on like who's able to own intellectual property. I think if people are very invested in and dedicated to the project of continuing to make fandom oppositional, then the wave is writing more fem slash and writing more people of color in like slash fiction. I agree that like it is less oppositional now to like write a write specifically men question marks around cis men. I'm not sure. Maybe, maybe not there. Um, but like white men. Um, those are the people who like are very accessible both inside and outside of fandom put all the like necessary caveats around that statement you you don't see very much very many people writing about men of color specifically relationships in which all parties are men of color and like my god femslash is just like a fucking wasteland not in terms of quality but in terms of like quantity sometimes also quality that's another podcast Honestly, I'm a hypocrite who doesn't read that much film slash, so I couldn't say. <laughs> I, last year, watched the movie It Chapter 2, unfortunately had a breakdown. And after the breakdown, I was like, I can read film slash now. How exciting. So, I, which is weird because there's no gay women in that movie. And in fact, there's only one woman character. So very mysterious. But I looked on AO3 and I started reading really popular film slash. And what I've discovered is that what a fascinating world full of bizarrely heteronormative romance. That's all. Okay. More on that another time. But I don't know. Like, I think that there are good reasons. Like, I also think that the fact that fandom is a pleasurable activity, it is oppositional, but it is not itself necessarily activist, is like lost in this conversation a lot of the time. It can be part of activism, potentially, I guess, if you like perform fandom in a certain way. But like, I don't know about y'all, but like I'm doing political stuff in my real life all the time, both by existing, by being active in my community and my union and whatever. Sometimes when I'm doing fandom stuff, I like need a break from thinking very constantly about like, oh, the state of the world, sometimes not. So the fact that fandom should be not only morally correct and respectable, but also serve social justice at large is like, such a strange take for me when fandom is in fact this like pleasurable activity at its heart like that's part of what makes fandom okay not to be a socialist you know on main again but part of what makes like fandom oppositional in some sense is it's like prioritizing of pleasure over marketability right and particularly the pleasure of people whose pleasure is not prioritized by the market i.e people who are marginalized in some way i don't know there's like something really sinister to me about this like calvinist approach where you know you can't do things because you like them like you have to justify them morally in this particular way which and then the morality that gets attached to it is indeed this like very mainstream often to me seems christian morality about what's appropriate all of that goes into making fandom like non-oppositional if you are adopting sort of like the patriarchal like you know whatever of the society you're writing in that's not oppositional necessarily I, like i agree with 
all of that. But you have some people who think that because that's their position, they don't want to have it pointed out to them like, well, you're continuing to just write stories about like two white men fucking like there is, you know, an element of, I don't know, white hegemony or whatever, like motivating that choice. And like, I think, unfortunately, trying to balance these two things is like part of the like you have to be responsible like I, I don't know I feel like I have to be responsible for my preferences without telling people who want to point out like the flaws in the positioning of fandom as like oppositional as like wrong I feel like I probably that wasn't a very grammatically well corrected sentence Henry Jenkins is not just a a white guy he is as far as I'm aware like a white cishet guy who I do think is a fan in some sense but when he created this structure you know what he had access to was his experience and I think that that is embedded in basically all of the discourse that has followed up to and including the work of forming these spaces on Tumblr and like building out AO3, et cetera, et cetera. And like, uh, I would feel like I wasn't doing a very good job uh, moderating this conversation to some extent if I didn't note that like a lot of the pushback um, on you know, fandom is, you know, activism or fandom is resistance practice is coming basically from fans of color who are pretty much noting correctly, like we have largely been excluded from this construction. I do not have any follow up to that. The only thing that I will say is please invite me back for the episode where y'all dig into the, um, writing slash fan fiction is fetishizing um queer men conversation because <laughs> that'll be a fun one. <laughs> oh boy I, I yes you've got it an invitation anytime this is where i just want to throw in that jack zimmerman has like the biggest hits i've ever seen and his nipples are like huge please look at drawings of him they are gigantic like it just i'm sorry nobody's talking about it why is nobody talking about it and you know what i think somebody should jizz on his tits listen up listen up so people in the back in here his tits they're big Hold on to your seats, folks. <laughs> Here's my PowerPoint about it. <laughs> While we're in the kind of like academic realm, uh, I do think it's maybe worth like touching on something that was leveled against us uh, in, in terms of like a criticism of this podcast. Too much time is spent maybe like on theory and in particular lit theory. I think the assertion is that it's like fake intellectual or maybe like trying to be purposely distancing or something to like shut down counter arguments. Like if you talk about something and you say like, well, Foucault said it, other people can't um, argue with you. I have to tell you, Foucault said a lot of shit. Like he said a lot of bullshit and uh, feel free to argue with it. I I think there is kind of like a sort of exclusionary classist thing, just talking endlessly about like scholars that 
most people will never have had the chance to read because who the fuck has the time or perhaps the money to like pursue this kind of graduate degree Well, you'll be exposed to these things. That is true. At the same time, it is also true that basically there is a kind of nasty, like anti-intellectual position that just because something sounds smarter than I care to engage with means suddenly it is valueless. Even though I bring like theory and lit theory into the podcast, sometimes I'm not the person usually doing it. So let's hear from them. So I'm obviously the person, me, Tomato, who can't stop being like, oh, we're on parts of this thing. Let me talk about it. And the reason is honestly because these random mostly dudes um, who I bring up on this podcast, I, I try to protect you from my worst impulses, which means I only bring up like two or three theorists on this podcast and podcasts instead of dozens. But they, they helped me understand things I felt but couldn't articulate. Reading their work, which is difficult and strange and sometimes makes me feel insane, gave me the tools to examine literature in a way that made literature feel meaningful and alive to me again after the school system had basically like beat me into submission of like the only thing there is to do is color code close reading and then I discovered lip theory and I was like oh whoa there's like all these weirdos who see things in really weird ways and they're writing these crazy essays about it and and this is giving me a new way to understand how structures of narrative work how structures of power work so on and so forth I will say a lot of theory is really limited in utility embarrassing or like dumb sometimes sometimes theory is just you know theory for theory's sake I think people who don't enjoy theory and find it to be exclusive are not wrong on all the time. Like there are definitely theorists who do that or people who are writing in that vein who, who do that purposefully. And a lot of it is only useful to people who are already really interested in a particular topic. Like I'm always bringing up narratology because that is like truly my relationship to every single text that I read and I'm fascinated by. But I recognize that not everyone has that relationship. At the same time, it's what makes Check Please really a, like fascinating to me. So it's not to be fake intellectual and it's not to be distancing, although I know it can feel that way which is usually why I'm trying to explain what the fuck I'm talking about. But it's because it's really genuinely how I relate to texts. And I, I don't know how to relate to texts to other ways because when I tried, I got really bored and I like couldn't do it. A lot of people do seem to think that this is like a wrong way to engage with texts. And I'm curious about why that might be or or what you think about that. Yes, there is a problem. However, when I talk about Roland Bards for 30 minutes and we have a 90 minute podcast to finish it, so I understand that. That's fucking bullshit people can engage with text in the way that they want in the way that they find enjoyable we have recorded for the last uh three hours about how i think that's fucking bullshit i also want to acknowledge that i'm probably the wrong person to potentially um identify the ways that this is problematic because I'm also like so here's the interesting thing um I was a part of academia and then moved into social justice which positions me in a really particular way to say that yes a lot of these texts are really exclusive and written to intentionally put people off there are also the texts and the theories that are like shaping the world that we live in and the systems that we are a part of. So like 
I'm never going to tell someone that they should read Foucault. I'm so sorry. I'm never going to do that. But I also want to push back against the idea that theory or philosophy or like any of these things, not saying that you said this tomato, like, but this is a thing that I've seen is like the realm of only like old French white men. It's not, it's just not. My degrees are in like specifically like media criticism, like very specifically around like black feminism. There are texts, there is philosophy that is written in like very easily accessible and understandable ways. And I just, I just really like disagree with the characterization that academia as a whole, philosophy, like theory as a whole is like one way. Cannot emphasize enough People can do what they want. Like, fuck off. This is the way that, like, y'all and also I, like, engage with this is what it looks like when we like things. It's also important to recognize, I think, that when people bring theory into criticism or whatever, this is not actually a full portrait of who they are, what they think, what they're doing. Because when you bring up like black feminist theory specifically, like black feminist theory is actually really important to me in my personal life. It doesn't tend to talk about my, like specifically black feminist lesbian theory is like a big deal for me, but it doesn't tend to come up when I'm talking about check please because like the concerns of check please don't have that much to do with it, right? And even though I personally put so much information about myself on the internet, every day it's still not a full portrait of like everything I'm thinking and talking about on an everyday basis you know and so I think that's also important to recognize like what you see when you see someone criticize something including using these like texts does not actually encapsulate their entire relationship to that field to that text to like the way texts work anyway no one should read Foucault like honestly don't do it it's not worth it why shouldn't people read Foucault? First of all, if you start reading Foucault and you're like, oh, I hate this. I'm not getting anything out of this. I don't enjoy it. Unless you're like in some sort of context like academia, where it's considered like irresponsible not to attempt to engage with it, you can just stop. But more to the point, it's like, listen, Foucault is influential because he did a good job finding a way to articulate phenomena that everybody is familiar with and that bear down on everybody's life that nobody had taken the time to like, you know, I don't know, find a way to express verbally before. That's why he's so often cited and so often uh, miscited. It's just like, yeah, I mean, read it, read it if you want to. Like it's, it's reading Foucault in and of itself is a completely value neutral thing. So long as you go into it with like an open mind of, I think this has a lot of potential to speak to me, I'm not necessarily going to take it as doctrine. That's the right way to engage with things. Check please too, by the way. I am largely situated like in my own like non-fandom related life at the juncture between media and the art world and academia. And so I have spent a lot of time engaging with this shit. And some of it is really useful, really helpful. Some of it is not that helpful, not that interesting to me. And what I think about it in terms of this podcast is it's important for me to utilize editorial judgment about when it's useful and helpful to bring these things in. 
it's our fucking podcast. Like we decided to make this goddamn podcast. Like who are we serving with this podcast? Well, in some senses us, and in some senses our listeners. If people, you know, understand who Secret and Tomato are and they're interested in hearing Secret and Tomato and sometimes other people also talk about check please, that's what they're going to get here. If people aren't, then don't listen and it's fine. No hard feelings. We're never like, I don't think ever insisting that what we say on this podcast is the only way to read or engage with check please or anything. I have always presumed at the top of everything we've done through this podcast that it's our podcast, ergo, it's what we think, and it doesn't extend any further than that. So if it's useful to us to use, I don't know, some of these people to explain what we're talking about when we're talking about check please, which by the way is a narrative. So of course, narratology like applies to it somewhere, even if you're not thinking about it actively, like that's what we're gonna do. Unfortunately, the flip side of that coin is that like podcasts are a form that have codifications the same way that readers are part of check please like reception is part of check please listeners are part of the podcast coming from the main thing i do for money when i'm not like i don't know doing bullshit on the side for edification is edits and from like an editorial standpoint going through an entire philosophy of reading 101 explanation of like what Roland Bart has to say doesn't necessarily serve making or consuming the podcast at a certain point because most listeners are going to be able to tolerate like 45 to 90 minutes and mostly what they're here to hear about is check please. So they want us to probably, for the most part, skip over what is the panopticon and just get to how Jack gets off on the idea of being in a panopticon. Well, it's phallic, so yeah, obviously. Well, also, he just, he loves being watched. But like, it's a hard tension to navigate, but this is like part of how we make this podcast, or at least part of how I intentionally make the podcast is we outline the thing to try to figure out like, what are we going to talk about? Sometimes we, you know, just write all of our, we, you know, puke up all of our thoughts onto a Google doc. And then, you know, we step back and look at it and we start to think, well, this content would go better in another episode. Maybe we don't need to like get through everything we've written out in order to make like the main point, which is actually that Jack's penis is very small or whatever it is that we're getting out of the webcomic check, please. And then when we're editing the podcast, I think Tomato maybe has like a slightly different approach than I do. My guess is big swaths of like what we're talking about here are gonna get cut because the nature of having a conversation is you work through certain things and then in the, the result of working through them, talking through them is that then you get to the interesting point. And at a certain point, it's like, we have been talking at this timestamp for three hours and 12 minutes. And while I have enjoyed 
every minute of that three hours and 12 minutes. The fact is it's not sustainable to expect everyone to listen to all three hours, 12 minutes plus. And it's also not sustainable for me to edit that much more than four hours of talking. That's some of my response to like why I think lit theory is a valuable thing to bring into this podcast, but only in like, you know, a limited and useful way that can only really be determined by like the process of figuring out, well, how are we going to talk about individual strips and individual episodes? Sometimes it's really useful. Sometimes it's just like, whatever. Yeah, I'm sorry. You're just a better editor than I am. So sometimes I just get real off track. I think in some ways I'm probably a better editor, but in other ways, like, I'm definitely not. And, you know, we have different approaches, and that's why listening to this podcast episode to episode is probably such an adventure for everyone. I told Secret that this was going to be longer than three hours. So I just want to, like, sit in that correctness for a moment. (laughs) No, I think it's fun. It, It doesn't feel like three hours It will during editing, but it doesn't now because it's like interesting. But then like, this is a special episode. Like if every single, if every single episode we did on these things started spilling into like three hours, then it would be a problem because I mean, we've gone from two episodes a week to like one every two weeks over the past year. I think this is also, also, this also makes me think... Of the assertion that I've seen a couple of times here and there, mostly around Tumblr, um, that fandom is particularly populated by folks who are uh, neuroatypical. Um, because I'm just like, I would listen to this like if it was three hours every week, but this is also one of my hyper focuses. So maybe I'm not the best person to ask. I think this thing about it being overly intellectual to me. It's very much related to the way in which my whole life people have either like called like criticized me or made fun of me for speaking in a this bizarrely like detached proper way that I think to other people sounds either like I'm trying to be like overly intellectual or something that just doesn't see like sound right to other people. Like Tomato said, it's like, it's not an affectation. It's just how I talk. I think this is the speech pattern of somebody who is not neurotypical. Sometimes because Tumblr is like a really detached place where of course you can't know everything about the person who is writing the post or speaking the words on the podcast. It's difficult to envision who is speaking to you and why and all you hear is that they sound robotic or they sound overly intellectual but it's probably worth remembering when you deal with people in like a largely to a certain extent anonymized space that you just don't know where these words are necessarily coming from. It has been my experience that people talk at length about something that they have thought deeply about, regardless of if they're like citing philosophers or not, people are going to accuse them of being overly intellectual. In my last 
last maybe current fandom like one of those guys like has strong opinions about music clearly is just like talking out of his ass like sharing his opinions about music and i have seen people who like are assumedly fans of his refer to him as being pretentious i think that there is just a discomfort honestly maybe even it's a discomfort with people engaging in fandom in this sort of older way that like as one of y'all said, requires commitment and requires thought and requires time. It's just like rather than deciding that you want to commit that time or rather than seeing like, oh, this person does fandom this way and I do it in mine, people get like weird and mean about it. <laughs> I have been told that the way that I talk is like inherently violent and abusive. The way that we are trying to communicate about something that is complicated for some reason feels like it is, it is itself an attack. I don't really know why, like even um, I don't know which of those guys likes music, but the fact that one of them likes music and like talks about it at length, is like not an attack on someone who doesn't know about music or who knows about music in a different way or who thinks about music in a different way. It's clearly just that guy communicating like the way that makes sense to him, right? The way that I communicate, like, unfortunately, trust me, I've tried to change it so many times and I can't it's just how it is and the way that I think is just how I think I cannot change it and I think most people probably find that that they like they have a certain way of engaging with the world that is not always possible to change or maybe you can tweak it depending on what circumstance you're in but you can't like totally change how you think and when over and over again you kind of receive the the message like the way that you talk is wrong which is informed by all sorts of things, including classism, ableism, racism, homophobia, transphobia, like any kind of like social system that impacts the way people perceive you, right? All of that is in, is is kind of implicated potentially when someone critiques how you talk. And so I'm not trying to say that people aren't sometimes like trying to be exclusionary by like pulling in jargon and being like opaque in the way that they talk. It's both anti-intellectualism and then also like I don't know. It's part of that sort of like policing of like how it's okay to be a fan or how it's okay to deal with something. And if you kind of veer outside of this narrow path, it's no longer okay. And you need to be brought back to the fold somehow, which is usually by calling you mean. Which of you guys brought up this? It's not that deep comments. Oh God. Now I have to have thoughts about it. (laughs) Actually, I thought that was, a really smart thing to peg to this. It's like such an easy dismissal of basically anybody saying anything like, oh, it's not that deep. Like it's just like the easiest way to like make somebody feel bad for like having developed thoughts on any topic. It happens constantly actually on fail fandom anon in these like check please threads where people, somebody will be like, I don't understand why this thread is so long. Check please isn't even that deep. Then don't go in the thread. Like, I don't understand. Like don't click expand. Everything is that deep is the thing. Things are as deep as like people want to deepen them. Everything, again, exists in a sort of like web of intertextualities. Sorry for using a vaguely academic word, but like nothing is created in a vacuum. The creator of everything has done other things 
the company that produced everything has produced other things. Texts are informed by like the other things that the person making them has consumed. They are interpreted by the other things that the people like consuming them have read and so on and so forth. So like there's literally no limit to like how deep things can be if you're willing to like engage with them critically again in the neutral sense, like in good faith. And on the top topic of check please specifically check please brings together like so many fucking discourses that are just like contentious and like not easily resolved just the things that i came up with in in terms of thinking through like well what does check please touch on either like in part or in full it's like coming out and like queer identity and toxic masculinity and like slash fandom and the whole thing about like what are comics what are web comics uh what is multi multi-platform storytelling, hockey, college, mental illness, celebrity culture, addiction. Which of these things is not a deep topic, like just in and of itself, in the sense that it's a complex issue with no easy resolution. So it's like the idea that Check Please isn't that deep, like, yeah, like the story itself isn't that deep. Like, you know, Biddy is like a fun twink who falls in love with Jack, like he bakes pies the end. As a story, as a narrative, as a plot, maybe not that deep. But to insist that like Check Please isn't deep enough to like beg further engagement is basically to deny that Check Please does not exist on its own. It exists like in conversation with so many other topics subtly but perceptibly change how Check Please is received. Yes, and (laughs) people in defense of Check Please are like, this story is about about half of the things that you named here. These things, the the deepness, the complexity of Check Please is why a lot of people enjoy it. So this is not a thing that I've seen specifically said about Check Please, but it is a thing that I've seen said anytime like people engage deeply with a text. Like when I see people engaging deeply and thinking about and putting all of this time and energy into those thoughts that is you know not always because like everybody hate reads um or hate watches but like often is a an action of like real deep like love and appreciation I still haven't quite figured out why that is so uncomfortable for other people I think it has maybe to do with loving things in the quote wrong way. I know I have definitely been told it's not that deep about meta that I've written about Check Please, which is really interesting because as you say, Check Please is dealing with these like fraught topics. And the reason that a lot of people want to read them, even in the sort of like Check Please positive camp is, well, it deals with homophobia, but then like resolves it in a way that's really satisfying for me. But the fact of homophobia is in fact the like driving narrative engine of the entire comic. And that itself is pretty deep like homophobia is something worth thinking about and like even if you wholly love how the comic deals with it that means that the comic for you is unpacking it in this really satisfying way which is a deep process so the fact of being like it's not that deep as the shutdown is so bizarre to me just to your point about like why it makes people uncomfortable I'm not totally sure but something about other people loving something in a way that you don't and coming up with a different idea about it 
for some reason feels really, I think it makes people feel maybe either defensive or insecure. That's my guess. I'm, I'm not trying to like totally understand where other people are coming from. I don't know, but that seems to be the response is like, well, you love this, but your interpretation is different than mine. And somehow that attacks my interpretation. I have to shut down your interpretation so that mine can exist which is not how criticism works. Like all ideas about fiction exist at the same time. And that's why Tumblr exists so that everyone can have their own blog. Like it's very, it's a very mysterious response to me personally. This not that deep thing is sort of twinned to me with this argument that like, oh, it's just a happy story. Why can't you just let people have a happy story? But here's the thing that nobody ever brings up. You're making a lot of assumptions about what a happy story is and who your reader is and what they think of as happy. If you attack or if you respond to the idea that this is a happy story, I think it's presumed that it's not a good look to basically say like, oh, there shouldn't be happy queer stories or like, oh, Biddy shouldn't have a happy outcome. But the point is, as a reader of this particular comic, my response is, well, this isn't what would make me happy. And so I'm very interested in questioning why this is the outcome that the creator has landed on in trying to create a happy queer narrative. And that's leaving aside other questions of like, is it socially responsible or whatever to basically use a sort of narrative magic wand to wave away like issues of potential unhappiness that like the author herself introduced into the comic. I want to briefly point out that you secret did not mention Canada in the list of topics that you brought up that the comic's about, but it is in the outline. And I think that's a very troubling omission. Something that happens constantly in in outlining these episodes is that I will put in like little jokes and usually they're like very explicit or like not PC at all (laughs) uh, that are basically just for like tomato to see and chuckle at. And every time without fail, tomato like commits them to recording. And I want other people to appreciate it, even though I recognize that outside of the context of the outline, it's probably not as funny. But every time I'm like, oh, this gives me a little spark of happiness. I want to I want other people to know how funny secret is. That's what happens anyway. I, I think I think I think that Canada was the only the only joke I put into this outline. I will say I think my favorite one is the one about how like Kent Parson will die in an almshouse or something ignobly and his son won't make a favorable marriage okay then we have to move on this awful <laughs> this fandom is distinctly unlike a lot of fandoms that i'm familiar with and i'm not familiar with that many fandoms although i am familiar in check please fandom but what i will say is like this fandom is based on a canon that centers one creator who is highly identifiable and fully reconcilable with the text that she has created. And I think this is very different from other visible fandoms. If you think about who, say, like the author or the owner of something like South, well, not South Park, well, even South Park, but I was thinking more like Star Trek, Star Wars, Marvel. Who is the author here? What is the creative or the like authorial intent? 
who are you actually violating if you do something unsanctified to the story or the characters? It's probably at a certain point, like relatively anonymous and in other senses, collective, not in the sense that it's like a socialist collective. We're living on a kibbutz, but in the sense that like, you know, this was created by George Lucas, but every movie had like a huge number of people contributing to exactly what ended up in the movie. And then it was bought by another corporation that has like made the situation even more complicated and on and on and on. It's just like at a certain point, it's like, who is the author that I would be offending by writing basically a a penis comic about Luke Skywalker and the Mandalorian, which um, one Ngozi published um, this week? I don't know, probably nobody. But with Check, Please, it's like, very plain who the author is. And the author is somebody who is incredibly like accessible compared to say like George Lucas or like Disney as an amorphous thing. What it is to be mean or what it is to be critical is really much more directed at one specific person who in many contexts is like in the room, so to speak. I don't think that obviously, I don't think that this podcast is mean. I don't think even if, frankly, I don't think even if y'all spent like 50 some odd episodes just shitting on Ngozi that it would be mean because you are not sending it to her. (laughs) I recognize and agree with your point secret that like it is very different than the sort of idea of this anonymous like collective of authorship it is and I think that there is a difference between having an opinion in public and sending that opinion to her and I would also assert that if someone were to send this podcast to her then that person, that sort of intermediary, would be the issue, not, what's the word, host of this podcast. I don't think that we can be like, you can't have a negative opinion where the author can see. A, I don't know how fandom survives in that scenario. And B, I don't know how we get to the point of like, I want to approach this creatively under those circumstances so I think yeah I just I feel like I don't care (laughs) like if it turns out that one of the 30 listeners (laughs) that download this or like the however many that are unidentified that she's one of them listens to this podcast every night and like cries into her pillow which like hopefully isn't happening but like yeah I could see her feeling real shitty Um, And that sucks, but it still wouldn't be mean of y'all to have an opinion in public. I just, I just, I just can't get down with that argument. So the people who made these criticisms that got me thinking like, maybe we should make this whole, you know, four hour podcast in response to this. They seem not to have listened to this podcast. They seem to be ignorant of what the content is. I don't 
really think they are familiar with what are activities outside of making the podcast and like some, you know, Tumblr shit posting is. Here's where I'll, I'll have maybe like a mea culpa. The name of the podcast is Check Displeased. And when I think Tomato came up with this, I thought, oh, that's very funny in an ironic way because it's a little pun. When I mentioned this title to Nahingen, the designer of our cover art slash my, my South Park friend, uh, Nahingen said, maybe people will think that this is like a mean podcast or something similar based on that name. And I was just like, well, it's the best name we've come up with. And maybe people won't. <laughs> and then I went ahead with it. And I think if you see that the name of the podcast is Check Displeased, you probably think that all we're doing is sitting here sporking the comic. And it's not that we never spork the comic. Some things in the comic are nuts and worth commenting upon. But I maintain, as I do about all of the work that I consume, is that a holistic approach to a giant comic that went on for like seven years with all sorts of paratexts is that the whole of the thing can be good and worthy in some senses while also containing some elements that are like nuts and stupid. And that it would be very difficult to create a long-running webcomic that didn't contain some. And just because you want to point out some of these weird things while you're overall talking about the comic doesn't mean that you hate the comic. And I don't think it's mean to note that those things are there. But I think that people who are looking at this podcast from the outside and are already like disposed to not approve of what we're doing here are going to see that we're doing that at all and think that merely that gesture is mean. And so I think where we're kind of going over the course of this conversation is maybe asking ourselves why. And I think it has to do a lot, as we've noted already, with the author of the comic. I also briefly want to say, without getting too deeply into it, that my fanfic is a is a big part of the, I think, the reason people don't like this podcast, because some of the people who were critiquing the podcast have historically been very critical of the fanfic that I've written and and find me a troubling figure. So I think that's part of why talking about this is also related to sort of like fandom surveillance and what kind of work is appropriate is because I think some of the sort of like hesitation around the podcast is from like a couple of works that I've written that like weren't affirmational enough. That's fine. You don't like Tomatoes fanfic, you probably won't like Tomatoes podcast. That's a good indicator that the podcast isn't for you. And I think that's okay. A lot of people who argue that you ought not criticize Check Please or that it's mean or hateful to criticize Check Please seem to feel that Check Please is a passion project from an independent creator who is essentially making Check Please for free, like out of love. 
and that these conditions mean that you ought not criticize it. I don't know that Check, Please has been a passion project for a long time. It's been monetized for a really long time. It was also like the subject of Ngozi's uh, MFA thesis work. None of that is bad. Like, I definitely believe she should get paid for doing good work or any work whatsoever. And I also think it's really smart to like, do something that you're doing already as your like degree work, like, you know what, kill two birds with one stone, that's working smart. But that also means that like, well, she's getting more out of it than like merely the good feeling of like providing something to the world for its enjoyment. That's not the transaction that's happening here. Check please is not free to anybody. What it is for people who are reading it online is no cost. However, it is not free because it costs money and time to make, and there are expenses that are associated with that. And the way that Ngozi is funding that is by effectively setting up a cost-sharing method so that people can continue to read it on the internet for no cost or for free while she gets a publishing deal and like monthly support via Patreon and like income from Kickstarter, probably alongside financing the production of the books. Early in the life of the comic, she was already soliciting donations. It's not free to read. It's no cost. Even if it's no cost, I don't think something being like free makes it exempt from critique. Like, first of all, so many things that are like free or no cost online are very worthy of critique. Like just because something is open source source or like has no cost to access doesn't mean it like doesn't have like problems like that are worth noting. But I also would say that this is an inherently capitalist idea that like only things that are in the stream of capital merit discussion and therefore attention and critique. I just think that that's not actually serving the viewpoint that like most people making this argument are actually coming from. I also want to like just reiterate here that like as somebody who works in the arts and also academia, I think it's awesome when people make money off of their art like people should like I'm so happy to see that. And this is where I confess that like not only am I a Patreon subscriber, I also have put like actually hundreds of dollars into like her Kickstarters. So I'm not not supporting the comic. And I, I think that's really good. Still, just because it's good and just because it's allowable doesn't mean it doesn't like change the politics of the thing and the way that people in the fan base respond to it. I think this criticism essentially that like the comic is free and being made out of love means that like you shouldn't talk about it. I think that's just not realistic. I do remember this from the first time, the first go around with Check Please, that I was really impressed and amused by what seemed to me to be a really savvy understanding and manipulation of the priorities of fandom by writing a romance comic about two white men um and specifically like a black woman writing comics about two white men and while I don't I don't feel like as certain anymore um that like it was a really intentional thing I do still like 
I appreciate the fact that it, this is a black woman who's being paid very well and benefiting from this centralizing of whiteness. That said, in the notes here, um, and I agree that like there's this idea that because she's black, because the comic is about two gay people <laughs> and like allegedly about others, but you know, your mileage may vary, that it can't be critiqued. People of color and queer creators, specifically those that are like sort of small, like self-run creators are absolutely targeted and absolutely um, held to a unrealistic and higher standard than these like huge corporations that are creating things. Like that's just, no one gives a shit that there are no real gay characters in Marvel movies, right? But people are like, how dare you like have, um, I don't know, like a bisexual character who is occasionally mean. That's a real thing. And also in my humble opinion, as someone who has been black for um, almost 30 years now, um, black people are people (laughs) and capable of being capable and are in fact just as steeped in the you know insert ism here as everybody else and I in fact find it uh not only paternalistic but kind of dehumanizing to imply that you can't critique her because she's black you shouldn't be racist towards her you shouldn't um you shouldn't offer her critique that you wouldn't offer other people purely because you know that she's black, which is again, racism. But people who say this are telling people that you should not engage with the work of this black woman the way you would anyone else. And to me, it it is like, you shouldn't commit the time, you shouldn't commit the energy, you shouldn't respect this work as much. And to do the sort of criticism that you would do with other pieces of art. So I do think that it probably started off as someone being like well-intentioned and wanting and thinking like, oh, this like black woman needs like protection. They are coming from like a place that I agree with, but saying that in response to what is like very obviously good faith criticism is manipulative. Um, and is taking advantage of the fact that people are very excited to write other people off as one thing without actually like listening to the arguments that they're making. And that's my spiel. (laughs) My main motivation in like just getting into this topic is that the assertion about this podcast or about our fandom activities collectively me and tomato is effectively one of these fans we found out doesn't like our podcast asserting that we must hate black women and i have exactly the amount of like white liberal guilt that you listener probably presume i do And while I'm by no means asking for anyone to just tell me, like, no, it's okay and move on, 
I do feel like this is a pretty serious assertion that just like demands some kind of introspection. I do take seriously the assertion that to even engage with Ngozi's work like this is purely an extension of racism. Like, even if ultimately our conclusion at the end of this episode is going to be like, no, it's not, or it's not mean, or whatever, I still feel like it's a weighty enough accusation that it is worth thinking through, like, well, why are we actually doing this? What is our stake? And is there validity to that? That pretty much point blank is like, I don't know why I think this is, or maybe the primary motivating factor that, you know, pushed me to sort of like pull this together instead of keeping it as like a what if in in the back of my head. I mean, I will say, and this might feel tangential, but it isn't to me, that Tomatoes fic about uh, Biddy doing something racist was the sort of deciding factor in like me following y'all specifically because it was the first and to this point maybe the only um, fan work that I have seen that actually engages in what it means that Biddy is like a young white man from suburban Georgia. I don't know why I can like I can think of a million reasons, but I don't know why um, Ngozi decided not to engage with that. But that is what I want. And the idea that because you're white, you can't have a perspective on on the works of a black woman or because you're white, you can't have perspectives on the reality of white supremacy is, I don't know. It, it feels like an erasure of, it feels like an erasure and I can't name specifically what of, and, you know, I sincerely doubt that that person is going to listen to the depths of uh, the depths that you have to go into this podcast to get here. But I can also see like the assertion that I'm on here to like provide cover for y'all or something like that, um, which is also obviously not true. And it's just statements like statements like oh y'all must really hate black women like feel good and feel easy and are also tools of avoiding avoiding this conversation and critical thought yeah I don't know it just to me it just feels like using the sort of social justice bent that tumblr has to do the same thing that we talked about a while ago which is saying um you're engaging with this in a way that I don't like and so now I'm going to I'm going to like use this specific language to shut down the conversation. Again, I don't know y'all. I know what racism looks like and this isn't it. (laughs) To me, this is not it. And in fact, saying that, oh, I'm not going to think about or I'm not going to engage with that because I know that the writer's a black woman. That's racism. I didn't come over here, uh, come on here to just be defensive of y'all, but also like, I do not agree with those people um or that person and I also just 
I think that there would be more of a willingness to like engage in the conversation than there actually has been or a willingness to be like, or to even like respond and be like, no, I'm not doing this. So I don't know. (laughs) I didn't know that about my fic. That makes me feel really nice because I wrote that fic for reasons that had to do with trying to unpack stuff happening in my life and getting the response that I get made me feel like I'd really hurt someone. And it's, it's just, um, that's the only response I really got to that fix. So it's, it's good to know that it wasn't just hurting people. That's really, that really feels, I'm really glad that it wasn't hurting the world by existing. Yeah. And it, I mean, it, it may very well may have hurt that person. Like I don't want to invalidate that experience at all, but for me, it was the first time that I felt like anyone understood that like black people are also part of this fandom frankly so yeah I don't want to invalidate their experience either like I I'm not meaning to do that but I'm just really appreciative to hear that thank you thank you uh not not for like validating us and or tomatoes uh fanfic but basically like being willing to pretty much like sit here for four hours just like that's a lot so I do appreciate that. And I appreciate you're willing to like speak about this weird topic because it is like ultimately like a big hyperfixation. My theory at the end of this is that many of these problems, these assertions of hate or whatever come from over-identification with something. I think in Ngozi's case, and I do think that this is something that uh, she has just outright stated before, correct me if I'm wrong, listeners, in the comments, that she identifies with Biddy. She has poured a lot of her personal experience with bigotry into Biddy. And I think the open question is how much of the situation of his experience with homophobia does she relate to? And I don't know that we can answer that. But I think that's why critics of Check Please bother her quite a bit because she feels that it's like invalidating of the experience of hers that she put into the comic. And likewise, I think when we critique Check Please, People who hold check please in very high esteem feel that we are attacking them in some sense for being very invested in check please for whatever reason, rather than thinking through why does this comic work or not work for us. What I will say to people who have problems with my fanfic, our podcast, whatever. Like, I am open to not just Concrete, but like Crit. I don't think that anybody who really hates this podcast is going to be listening right this second. But like, if, if you genuinely have like serious criticism, either because you think we are engaging in some form of racism or something else, like, please do bring it. Like, I am genuinely open i know that there is you know that the onus on the onus on explaining like what is and isn't racist or what is and isn't like some other ism like ought not be on like you know people who are vulnerable to it at the same time it's like 
I, I don't know what else to say. Like, I, I would love to hear if people have actual criticisms and it really, they really feel harmed by something. I would love to not harm people if I could help it. So please feel free to elaborate. Other than that, do I think this podcast is mean? Um, I think like, I, like it, it can be like, I know I've said things like, fuck this comic, like in the second episode or whatever, that like maybe weren't like the most highfalutin way to express my opinion. But do I think like the mere existence of a podcast like this is mean like no i mean we're we're never just sitting around saying like ngozi is talentless only somebody awful would create this i don't think it's mean either but actually queer of cups you've already said you don't think it's mean but you're our listener perspective and i anything you want to add as we wrap up that episode towards the end about meanness or about i don't know anything is this podcast mean also like sort of what am I trying to say assumes that there is one like metric by which meanness is measured saying like fuck this comic or you know pointing out I don't know maybe the questionable size of some character's eyes or things like that um even like making fun of like lovingly making fun of those sorts of things I think that there's a place for that Asserting that something is mean is assuming shared values and shared culture and shared expectations around what is acceptable in terms of what is seen as loving or affectionate or what is seen as like kind of mean, but not necessarily beyond the pale. And I just think that there are so many points along that spectrum that people can fall. All of this to say, no. I don't think this podcast is mean. I think it's generally delightful because I find y'all generally delightful. But I also think that it is inhabiting a really necessary space for folks who are not interested in sort of unquestioning, unquestioningly <laughs> phrasing the podcast or just like shitting on it. Um, and that is like a space that I enjoy inhabiting um that I find really sort of creatively motivating um and I imagine that I'm not the only person and also like I think people need to fucking chill (laughs) and just like not about this podcast but just like fandom wise in general like we can't be so fucking uptight about being nice all the time like don't dox people obviously but my God, we don't have to be constantly like making out with each other. <laughs> like it's okay for people to have a personality. Fuck. That's my wrap up. <laughs> oh, there's a, oh, there's a real spectrum of behavior between making out with and doxing. Actually, sometimes they just go together, you know? I dox nearly everybody I've made out with and um Listen, if they consent to the doxing, it's all good. It's fine. You just have to ask them for Oh, nobody consents to being Doc's tomato. (laughs) Well, maybe that's considered okay for you. (laughs) Well, listen, some people whose names may or may not be Jack Zimmerman love to be watched and love the world to know what they're doing. And doxing is just the internet version of, you know, Panopticon. I don't know where I'm going with this. Anyway, Doc's Jack Zimmerman 2021. That's, that's That's my new fandom. 
I think what's come out of this podcast is that we absolutely are going to have to do a special episode on uh, is it is it problematic to fetishize gay men uh, who don't exist because they're part of Check, Please. And I would love to have you back to talk about that because... Oh my God, I have feelings. <laughs> Tomato, any, any other, any other loose ends you want to throw in or should be, should be move to the outro? Oh, I had such a good time. I don't know if I can handle too much more. So I think, I think we should wrap towards an end. Yes. Yes. Uh, where can people find you? What are you up to? How, what level of hater are you anticipating will come following this you can find me as Queer of Cups, all one word, on Tumblr and um, AO3. You can probably find me other places, but like, don't friend me. I won't friend you back unless I know you. Watch the AO3 space. Um, I will definitely be writing more Check Please fic, specifically because, you know, both Secret and Tomato <laughs> bought some via abortion donations. <laughs> Maybe some uh, M abortion in your future. Who knows? You can send hate my way. I truly don't give a fuck. I'm being, you know, very nice and cordial on this podcast. But to be clear, I am a mega bitch. So, you know, send whatever you want. I don't care. I'm so excited for whatever it is that you write because... You know, I I also have a hyperfixation, and it's basically on on just like messy fucking fix about these idiots <laughs> being morons, and that's what I like. That's what brings me joy. I'm secret. You can find me on Tumblr at Camillier C A M I L L I A R or S K R T O M G, and I also write fanfic. Um, on AO3 under familiar. And that's uh, what my situation is. And I'm Tomato, and you can find me at tomatowrites.tumblr.com or at tomato underscore greens on AO3. And you can find our podcast here. Where is it? On Podbean or on Spotify or at checkdisplease.tumblr.com. And eventually on checkthisplease.xyz, the website. The coding's all done. We're just neatening it up now. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're, we're going through some things. Um, listen, we are so pleased that we were able to have this conversation. So excited to talk about the next half of this comic and really grateful that Queer of Cups came to chat with us about our favorite topic ourselves. Next episode, we are getting into year three, the best year of Check, Please! the comic in terms of things I have to say about it. And we will be resuming our read through with comic 3.1, WAG. Tune in. And um, yeah, I guess that's us signing off after uh, four hours and 13 minutes. Thanks so much, everyone. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, shit. 
I'm 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 not. Um, I did recently, however, find out that um, my friend's grandmother was in the Hitler Youth, and it's like all I can think about right now. It's like I'm like obsessed with this fact. <laughs> um, it's not about check, please. Although you want to know, it'd be a really good check, please. <laughs> Check This Pleased is written, recorded, and produced by Secret and Tomato. Our theme music is by Tomato, and our art is by Nahangan.